The Truth of Poetry Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Well, as I did last time, let me start off with a little florilegia of uh, quotations, very brief ones. The first one is from Theodore Hecker. Virgil is the only pagan who takes rank with the Jewish and Christian prophets. The Aeneid is the only book, apart from Holy Scripture, to contain sayings that are valid beyond the particular hour and circumstance of their day. End quote. And then the second one is from um, William Anderson, who wrote a book on the Aeneid in the introductory chapter of which he says the following, quote, I personally feel that Virgil penetrates closer to the moral core of the universe than any ancient epic poet, perhaps any ancient poet at all, and the respect which later Christians showed towards his work suggests they perceive the same religious moral depth, end quote. Well, I agree with those quotations very much. I would only qualify them by saying that one of the things that makes Virgil's writings great, I think, is that he fails to do what he sets out to do. And he's aware of the failure. There are great misgivings that come into Virgil's work. I think I mentioned this last time. At the end of his life, he wants to burn the Aeneid. I think that's because he's afraid that he has let loose something. He's let the cat out of the bag. He's said more than is safe to say. And so on. So let me just try to give a little historical background and very, very brief. Virgil died in 19 BC, 19 years before the date we assign for the birth of Christ. He lived during a time of civil war in Rome, tremendous strife and confusion. And he wrote three major works the Eclogues, the Georgics, and the Aeneid. They're quite distinct. On one hand, and they have a very uh, powerful underlying connective thread on the other. Most people say if you want to understand the Aeneid, you have to understand the Georgics. If you want to understand the Georgics, you have to understand the Eclogues. And we're not going to take time. We're barely going to have time to, to touch on a few of the issues raised in the Aeneid. So I'm not going to go back over these other things, but I will mention them in passing this morning. In the Eclogues, Virgil goes back to nature pristine nature, nature untouched, unworked by human hands. And he goes there to sing poetry. So the eclogues, if, if they were in a modern setting, would be nature romanticism. From the beginning to the end, what Virgil wants to do is to find a source of renewal. And he begins, as so many have, by thinking that the source of renewal is pure nature. And we've all had enough of experience of being in a natural setting and feeling renewed so that there's some tendency to think that maybe this is our source of renewal. But for Virgil, you know, the renewal is not just rejuvenation of a person after a long, hard week. Uh, The renewal has to do with living in a time of civil war and crisis and bloodshed and chaos and violence. So his first attempt to find some venue for the renewal of the world is nature. In the end, it fails. His next attempt is in the Georgics. And the Georgics represent what in our, in in modern times, we would call the the back-to-the-land ethic. The Georgics have to do with rural life, the kind of rural life that Virgil knew as a child and a young man. Uh, but they have to do with the working rural life, with the farming life, with the life of husbandry and shepherding and farming and the chores and work of rural existence. But even here, one is always aware that in the background of Virgil's concern are the great political and military upheavals that are taking place in his culture. For example, in the first Georgic, he says this, quote, Where wars abound so many, and myriad-faced is crime, where no meat honor hath the plow, the fields their husbandmen led far away, rot in neglect, and the curved pruning hooks into the sword's swift blade are fused and forged, 
It's the exact opposite of the Isaiah prophecy of turning swords into plowshares, exactly the opposite. So you see, he's concerned with rural life, he's concerned with farming, but he's concerned with it because he's looking for an alternative to this violence and strife that's taking place in his culture. So what is the background? Well, you know this, but I'll just go over it very briefly. There's civil war in one form or another during most of Virgil's life. One phase of it lasted from 49 to 45. It ended when Julius Caesar and his supporters defeated Pompey the Great. The civil war broke out again in 44 at the assassination of Julius Caesar. And it only came to an end with the victory of Caesar's great nephew and adopted son Octavian and his ally Mark Anthony over the forces of Brutus and Cassius at Philippi in 42. The alliance between Octavian, there was a triumvirate, lasted very briefly. Lepidus was edged out. The alliance between Octavian and Anthony fell apart. That's, the, that's Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. A civil war broke out, or an eruption broke out, which ended with the defeat of Antony in, at Actium in 31, and Antony's suicide shortly thereafter. As after that defeat, Octavian was named Augustus. The Augustan age began. He was deified, thought as a god. Uh, Julius Caesar had been made a god. And so Octavian, as the adopted son of Caesar, was the son of God, uh, and the deification took place. And people were caught up in the euphoria of peace and deification that happened after the Battle of Actium. And Virgil was caught up in it as well. And he wrote his poem, the Aeneid, to celebrate this new age, the age brought into being by Octavian in the fourth eclogue, he had already written a poem about how this young boy, Octavian, when he was young, was going to be the, the Redeemer figure. Uh, and so he comes back to that theme in, in the Aeneid, and he wants to tell now the story, the whole history of how Rome came to be, uh, beginning with the defeat of Troy and Aeneas's journey to found a new civilization. Throughout all of this period, Virgil is concerned, whether it's in the Eclogues or the Georgics or the Aeneid, he is concerned with what you might call the central anthropological conundrum, namely, how can order emerge out of chaos and violence? As the Aeneid shows, and I'll try to point this out as we go through it, Virgil is aware of how delicate the situation is, how difficult it is for order to emerge out of chaos and violence. It can emerge out of chaos and violence, but only under certain highly prescribed circumstances. Again, this is why ancient cultures were so conservative and so scrupulous about maintaining their rituals and so on, because they're the native realization that whatever has worked, don't change it. Let's stick with it, because if it has worked, if we created order out of chaos once, let's do it again. And let's do it exactly the way we did it before. Because it's possible for us to slide into some kind of chaos that we can't turn into order, that becomes total chaos. Just to give a feel for that, because I want to basically talk about Virgil's realization of the precariousness of the situation, uh, I just want to hearken back to a couple of things. Since the, it's obvious that you, you think about the Battle of Actium and you think about Antony and and uh, Octavian, then you think about Julius Caesar, and pretty soon you're thinking about Shakespeare, because he tells the story better than anybody else. And so I was thinking about the scene in Julius Caesar, or the scenes on either side of the assassination of Julius Caesar, when the characters in Shakespeare's play are talking about this murder. They're going to kill Caesar, and what they need to do is to turn that murder into a founding sacrifice. Because if it's just a murder, then they unleash civil war again. And so they have to turn it into a founding sacrifice. And so you have Brutus and his co-conspirators trying to figure out a way to turn this murder into founding sacrifice. And after it, you have Mark Antony trying to turn that murder into a criminal act 
that will inflame the crowd and get the crowd to perform its founding murder so that they found another it's still a found there's always a founding murder but it's who's going to be in charge and who's going to be the victim and so on in any event shakespeare's amazingly aware of all these things and in julius caesar brutus speaking to his co-conspirators as they're thinking about this founding murder by the way lest you think i'm totally off the aeneid ends with a founding murder aeneas killing turner and there are pivotal sacrifices all the way through, human sacrifices all the way through. Uh, so we'll keep coming back to this theme. But the point now is how delicate the situation is. And Shakespeare's aware of it. Shakespeare's more aware of it than Virgil, just as Dante was more aware of it than Virgil, and for the same reason, because both of them are living in a world that has already been infected by the revelation that has its source in the Passion and the Crucifixion. So we've gone over that before. Anyway, here's Brutus speaking to his co-conspirators in, in, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. He says, let be sacrificers, not butchers, Caius. This shall make our purpose necessary and not envious, which, or make it seem necessary, he said, which so appearing to the common eyes, we shall be called perjurers, not murderers, that we got rid of this disease among us, which is really Julius Caesar. In the last session, I talked about propaganda. Propaganda is a mythic cover-up carried out by people who are now aware of what they're doing. Myth is something generated, has the same cover-up quality, but it's generated by people who themselves are mystified by it, who really believe the myth. But propaganda is myth without the real belief in the myth by those who are sowing propaganda. So that's what this is. Nevertheless, it's done because it's a very delicate moment. This founding sacrifice can create culture or it can create chaos. And this goes back to Heraclitus. I mean, you know, we don't want to get into all this, but it goes back to the pre-Socratic uh, philosopher Heraclitus who says polemos or strife or violence can create order and it can destroy order. And it's that precarious. It creates order. If it brings people together and they're proud and happy of the violence that they participated in or condone, and it creates disorder if suddenly people disagree about whether that was good or bad violence. It's a delicate thing. I'll give you another. This is more Florilegia quotations, uh, but here's another one. Again, last time, I quoted Ricardo Quinones, who's written a book on uh, foundation sacrifice in Dante. Uh, and he says there, quote, from Dante's own awareness and bitter experience of civil war, this secular myth of foundation sacrifice simply does not succeed in controlling the passions that it unleashes. There was a foundation sacrifice in Florence at the beginning of the 13th century, and Dante harkens back to it in the Divine Comedy, and he notes that it didn't work. So Quinones is commenting on that. He says, far from containing human energies and bringing separate interest, even hostilities, into some kind of working accommodation, the founding sacrifice actually initiates long and bitter cycles of accelerating violence. In fact, it produces the very effects that it was designed to ward off. This goes back to the idea that the sacrificial violence is the homeopathic cure. It's the little bit of violence that cures violence, but if it's a little too much, it causes violence. It gets out of control. So suddenly, Quinonen says, the foundation sacrifice actually initiates long and bitter cycles of accelerating violence. In fact, it produces the very effects that it was designed to ward off. This is what, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories, the Aslan, the lion, says that, or is it Aslan? I don't know who says it. Uh, somebody in that story says uh, after Aslan, after the White Witch kills Aslan, death starts working backward. Uh, and to me, I've always thought of that when I read these things, where suddenly the, the old sacrificial system begins to explode. Not only does it fall apart, it actually begins to produce what it in ancient times used to eliminate. So it becomes the opposite of itself. And this is why the Gospels have an apocalyptic element. Because if you rely on the sacrificial system after it's been exposed and deconstructed, you let loose all of those passions 
and cycles of violence that the old, in the old order it would have cured. Final thing from Quinones, he says, the sense of balance it requires, the foundation sacrifice, the sense of balance that the foundation sacrifice requires, seems to be thrown off by the human emotions it generates. Rather than resolving disorder by an agreed-upon compact, foundation sacrifice itself becomes the turning point that diverts the world into even greater mayhem and disorder, end quote. And this is why you go back and read the book of Leviticus and you realize that the ancient Hebrews were incredibly preoccupied with uh, the sacrificial regime and all the little uh, things you had to do because they realized that this thing could get out of control. This contained violence, this laboratory violence of the sacrificial uh, ritual could suddenly become culture-wide violence. And so I mention these things because Virgil is living in a time when the world is rife with civil war and its, and its emotional and social corollary. And he's aware of the delicacy of the situation. In a sense, you might say, I think it's probably true to say, that he's, he writes the Aeneid as a way of trying to sacralize the violence of the past and make everybody stand up and salute. Virgil wants to sacralize the, the violence that led to the Pax Romana. See, we look back on Pax Romana and we sort of turn up our nose at the Pax Romana because we realize we see its, in a sense, we see its artificiality, its sacrificiality, its power structures, and all of those things that, that offend us. On the other hand, if we lived at the, in the world that Virgil lived in, we would have thought it was as great as he thought it was. You know, you can think, oh, the Pax Romana, that's a terrible thing. But if you're in Rwanda in 1993, was it, or four, when was that? Early 94. If you're in Rwanda in early 94, you want a little Pax Romana for God's sake, you see? And that's a very extreme example, but that's what happened with Virgil. And he, he saw that with this Roman power, this, this centralizing of power, under the deified Caesar Augustus, that order was brought out of chaos. And he wanted to dip it in bronze and put it on the mantelpiece in a hurry so that it would have staying power. And so he does it for the best of reasons. As I said before, he knows too much about the sacrificial system to really be able to provide the service. The service required here, of course, is myth. And you can only provide the myth if you really believe it. And Virgil wanted to believe it with all his heart. But he knew too much to believe it. He didn't disbelieve it in the way we'd say, oh, well, he didn't believe it. He simply knew too much about the world and the sacrificial structure to be able to wholeheartedly uh, write a poem that would endorse it. I want to talk about the pathos of Virgil himself because he's trying to do this for the best of reasons. He can't do it. Uh, and I want to talk about the birth of literature, what literature is. We've been talking lately about what poetry is, but what literature is, if there's a difference. And then why it was that Virgil knew more than he knew. Was it just because he was brilliant? I don't think so. Anyway, let me quote this from uh, George DeForest Lord, who wrote an essay on uh, the Aeneid. He says, where Homer's ahistorical treatment of the major events in the Greek heroic past permitted a limited optimism at the end of the Iliad and an almost unqualified optimism in Odysseus's triumphant restoration of his marriage, family, and country in the final books of the Odyssey, Aeneas's entire career, while succeeding in its fated goal of founding a new Troy in Italy, is beset at almost every step by a melancholic recognition that each apparent gain is accompanied by a loss, a loss so bitter and so contrary to expectations as virtually to cancel out the gain. In other words, Virgil is aware of the price that's being paid for this great cultural accomplishment, and the price that's being paid is always being paid by the victim. And Virgil knows that. Now, he doesn't have the same moral reaction to it that we do because he's living before the revelation that awakened that moral response in us. Nevertheless, he's aware of it. Why is it that he knows too much? 
here's how I would pursue that question. Virgil's younger contemporary was a Latin poet named Livy. And Livy said, quote, In the judgment of the most prudent and knowledgeable men, nothing dissolves religion as much as when people sacrifice according to foreign rites, not those of the fatherland, end quote. Sacrificing to foreign rites. Well, the, the Romans adopted Greek religious tradition. Greece was the real source of cultural life. The Romans simply were better administrators, you see. So they adopted the Greek tradition, their, their religious tradition, their cultural tradition, their literary tradition. I mean, Virgil is imitating Homer. Uh, the philosophical tradition, all of that, the, the Romans adopted. And something happens, as Livy says here, something happens when you adopt a foreign sacrificial regime, and that is that its sacred source doesn't quite make the transition. So you have it, but you don't have the same reverence for it. And so I would say, in Virgil, what's happening is that Virgil is suffering from that. He has all the myths there, but he doesn't believe them. He doesn't believe them in the way that one would have to believe them to really believe this. And he's like, Ovid is like that. Ovid's more cynical than, than Virgil, because Virgil really wants to believe him. Virgil's a Boy Scout. I mean, he really, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to put him down, for the very best of reasons. He wants to believe it because he knows what's at stake. Virgil is, is scared, you could say. I mean, that's probably not the way to put it, but he realizes that the world's a very precarious place. And there are certain fictions that hold it together that are commonly believed to be true. And if they cease to have common consent, then everything would be lost. He's seen what the world looks like when everything is lost, and it looks bloody. I think we have to have some empathy for Virgil. Nevertheless, he's a literary figure, and we have to ask ourselves, how is literature born? Now, I'm going to, again, this is not only painting with a broad brush, this is really boiling things down to ridiculous generalization, but let's ask ourselves, where does literature come from? It has to come from religion, doesn't it? I mean, where else would it come from? And religion, where does religion come from? Well, it comes from sacrifice. Where does sacrifice come from? It comes from the founding murder. So you have all that. Well, how does literature come into the world? I think it begins to emerge out of myth. It begins to emerge out of myth, and you can see it in Virgil and in the Roman poets, for example. You can see it in Homer, too. Uh, but you see it where the the mythological tradition is still there, but it's being handled by those who are to some extent outside of it. And myth begins to turn into literature. Now, to give you a background for that, let me just read something from uh, uh, Bruno Snell who wrote on the Eclogues, Vir Virgil's Eclogues. I'm just going to read, I know this sounds totally dull and boring, but I don't think is, and I think it'll help us later on. So I'm just going to read these excerpts from Snell's reflections on the eclogues and see if we can't think a little bit about the emergence of literature from myth and sacrificial culture. Snell says, The air of unreality that hangs over Virgil's poem is explained by the fact that he seeks to approximate the world of myth and that therefore he manipulates the traditional mythology with a greater license than would have been possible for a Greek. Yeah, that's just what I'm saying about the thing being imported into the Greek world. He begins to manipulate it. Well, in the, in the religious realm of things, you would never... The idea of manipulation is exactly what has to be uh, forsworn because you, can't, you want to do things exactly the way they've always been done. You do not want to monkey with the mechanism at all. So uh, Snell goes on. The muses in Virgil cease to be real divinity. The priest is no longer a practicing priest, the mystery cult is no longer a genuine worship, and the teacher has no actual disciples before him. Each image acquires a metaphorical meaning, and in this land of literary hopes, everything, as in Arcadia, which is the setting for the eclogue, must be taken with a grain of salt. Myth and reality intrude upon each other. Concrete existence gives way before significance. The heritage of the Greeks is turning into allegory and literature is transformed into a kingdom of symbol. I would say this is a way of talking about the emergence of literature out of a mythic frame of reference. It's still mythic, but it's now being told 
by someone who's not totally in the grip of the myth, still to some wants to be maybe, wants to stay within that, but is outside of it, and that's supremely true of Virgil. It, what I'm trying to do is to situate Virgil in the emergence of literature, not that it emerged with Virgil, but that using Virgil we can see how it emerges. Now, Bruno Snell says, the special importance of Virgil is that his eclogues represent the first serious attempt in literature to mold the Greek motifs into self-contained forms of beauty whose reality lies within themselves. Thus, art becomes symbol. So he's using mythic material to produce symbolic art, consciously doing that. And so I would say literature is born of the tension between the mythic impulse and the truth that the mythic impulse exists to conceal. Literature is born of the tension between the mythic impulse and the truth that the mythic impulse exists to conceal. And to be more specific, I think ultimately the two genres are gospel and myth. Not gospel in evangelical sense, but gospel in the sense of a, of a truth-seeking imperative uh, that will not be satisfied until it finds out wh wh where the victim is at the center of all the camaraderie and hoopla. And the mythic impulse, which is to enjoy and canonize the camaraderie with only a quick and vague, fog-filtered glance at the event that gave rise to it. One metaphor would be that you have the foreground, which is the happy crowd, and you have the background, which is the corpse of the victim that gave that crowd its unanimity. The metaphor would be a, the focus. Focus on the foreground, you get men. And you just turn the lens and focus on the on the victim, and you get gospel. The soul is naturally Christian. I didn't say it. Tertullian said it. And the poet is naturally an evangelist. That's not to say the poets are evangelists, but that the, the when you begin to monkey around with the focus, sooner or later you're going to find something you don't want to find. You see, you're going to sooner or later you're going to say, "Hey, look! If you just crank this thing all the way out, you see something. What is that little thing at the back?" <laughs> okay. Now, so now let me turn to the fourth Georgic which I think makes a very interesting introduction to the Aeneid. Now, as I said, the Georgics are concerned about rural life, farming, and so on, but always with an eye to the background issue, which is civil war, chaos, uh, culture, civilization, order, etc. And this is made quite obvious in the Georgics because they are inspired by uh, and written as a result of the encouragement of Messinus, who was a close advisor to Caesar Augustus. Now, Messinus is not really interested in rural life. Messinus is like Henry Kissinger, you know? It, he's, and so, to imagine Virgil is going on and on and on to Messinus, many of these things are addressed to Messinus. He says, Messinus, listen up, I'm going to tell you about farming. And you can imagine Messinus nodding off. This would be a little bit like... Uh, you know Peter Sellers' movie, Being There, where all he knew was gardening and television? And uh, he, he spoke in these gardening metaphors, and everybody thought he was talking about all these other things. You think? Well, this would be a little bit like the Chauncey Gardner, the Peter Sellers character in Being There, going on and on to Henry Kissinger about uh, these wonderful gardening metaphors and, have, and, and Kissinger recognizing their significance for cultural life. In fact, Virgil knows what he's doing. He realizes towards the end of the Georgics, he's realized it all the way through, really, but more and more, I think, that what farming represents, what the rural life, the, the work of rural life represents, is a kind of authentic metaphor for how culture can be and should be. So, there's a particularly striking metaphor in the fourth Georgic about that, and it's an explicit one in terms of its uh, cultural significance, and it's the commonwealth of the bees, you might say, or it's the metaphor of bees in the Fourth Georgic, and I want to talk about that. Virgil actually is talking about bees. He knows a lot about bees, but he's, it's clear that his main interest is in cultural life, 
And I think this is an interesting example of how in mythological times uh, one would see in natural phenomenon or in the, the manipulations of nature certain metaphors that would become part of the mythic structure but would really have their, the, their true reference in social affairs. In any event, uh, what's referred to here is what the Greeks called bugonia, the miracle of bugonia, which is the spontaneous emergence of a colony of bees from something. What do you think that something might be? A sacrificed animal. So for us, this parable of the bees can be a parable about how to follow the elusive anthropological trail back to its source, which is exactly what Virgil says of this metaphor. Steele Cominger, who's written an article on this, says, quote, the human qualities of the bees described in the fourth Georgic are apparent, not to say ostentatious. Most remarkable of all is the surpassing love they bear their leader. And the leader of the king of the of the bees is the king. So in Virgil's time, people didn't know that this big bee at the center of things was the queen. They thought it was the king. But but there again, you see, it fit the it fit the cultural paradigm. So uh, Commander says about uh, the king bee in Virgil's metaphor: while the king is safe, all are of one mind. Once he is lost, they turn upon one another, tearing down the hive and the stored honey. End quote. Now imagine the assassination of. Julius Caesar, you see. Uh, you see, Virgil is aware of the fact that, and this is why Augustus Caesar is deified. You see? And so for Virgil, it's very important that this central figure be revered with religious reverence because that's, that's the glue that holds things together. In any event, uh, the point is that commentators have recognized that what Virgil is talking about here is social life far more than uh, beekeeping. So here's how the Georgic begins. And I'm sorry, I have a kind of clumsy translation. I have since come upon a, a slightly better one, but when I put these notes together earlier in the week, I didn't have the, the better one, the more readable one, so I'm, I'm quoting from a, a, a slightly stiff and archaic translation. So the fourth Georgic begins, of airborne honey, gift of heaven, I now take up the tale. Honey here is, is a source of life. It's what keeps us together, makes things prosperous, makes life meaningful, sweetens everything. It's a, it's a metaphor for all of that. And it's airborne, a gift from heaven. It's a mystery. Where does it come from? Where does this come from? It's an absolute gift of the gods. And one wonders, how do we get this? Because there have been these times when we haven't had it. You know? So it's, it's manna from heaven, it's something like that. And Virgil is, is, is going to give a little disquisition here on how, how we get it. So he says, Upon this theme, no less, look thou, Messenus, with indulgent eye. Pay attention, Messenus. You, you have a tendency to nod off when I start talking about rural things because you're preoccupied with cultural matters, but don't, because this is right up your alley. A marvelous display, so now he says, here's what I'm going to talk about. A marvelous display of puny powers, high-hearted chiefs, a nation's history, its traits, its bent, its battles, and its clans, all each shall pass before you while I sing. So it's an explicit thing. He says, I'm going to tell you about cultural life while I'm talking to you about these bees. And the first thing he does is he creates a, a kind of complete fantasy. It's not entirely a, a fantasy, I suppose, because bees can be aggressive. But the idea that bees go to war in the same way that human beings do is not quite right, I don't think. I mean, I'm not an expert on bees. But nevertheless, here's how Virgil has it. If to battle they have hied them forth, for oft twixt king and king with uproar dire, fierce feud arises, and at once from far you may discern what passion sways the mob. You think he's talking about bees? Probably not. Or how their hearts are throbbing for the strife. Hark, 
the hoarse brazen note that warriors know chides on the loiterers, and the ear may catch a sound that mocks the war trump's broken blast. Then in hot haste they muster, then flash wings, sharpen their pointed beaks, and knit their thews, and round the king, even to his royal tent, throng rallying with shouts defying the foe. So they behave just like us, you see. They come together when they have a common object of contempt, when their sacrificial appetite, their, their, their bloodlust is directed toward their common enemy. There's this tremendous emergence of unanimity and esprit de corps. And they have culture. He's saying this for Messinus, no doubt. Notice the bees have a culture. That's one thing that the ancients did notice about bees. Is they have a cultural life. And so he says, alone of all things they receive and hold community of offspring. And they house together in one city, and beneath the shelter of majestic laws they live, and they alone, fixed home and country, know. So they, they are an organized, civilized colony. Since the human community sometimes seems not able to organize and civilize itself, he says, we should learn from them. They are our great exemplars when it comes to organizing and civilizing ourselves. So let's look and see what they have to teach us. The key to it all is the king. To their king do such obeisance, and lives the king unscathed, one will inspires the million. Is he dead? Snapped is the bond of fealty. They themselves ravage their, their toil-wrought honey, and rend the main their combs waxen trellis. And this is what happens. You, you, you want to go from this right to Shakespeare's speech by Mark Antony, where he whips up the crowd and it begins to run, run wild. Speaking of the king, he is lord of all their labor, him with awful eye they reverence, and with murmuring throngs surround in crowds attend, oft shoulder him on high, or with their bodies shield him from the fight, and seek through showering wounds a glorious death. He's the key to the whole thing. Now, the question is, where does this come from? Where does this civilization come from? And this is one of my favorite passages in this, Georgic. He says, But if one's whole stock fail him at a stroke, nor hath he whence to breed the race anew, tis time the wondrous secret to disclose. Even how the blood of slaughtered bullocks oft has borne be from corruption. I will trace me back to its prime source, the story's tangled thread, and thence unravel. If all is lost, we have to begin again. How does it begin? A wondrous secret, he says. The bees are born of corruption. When he says bee here, he means civilization, the culture of bees, is born of corruption. Now this is just like Heraclitus saying, strife can create order. They're born of corruption, and he says, so I'm going to trace back to the prime source, the story's tangled thread, and thence unravel. And this is pretty simple, except he throws in one major aside, which is unique to Virgil. And I think it's important for understanding the Aeneas. He says, That whole domain, its welfare's hope secure, rest on this art alone. So this is really, pay attention, Messinus. I'm going to tell you how it's done. First is chosen a straight recess, cramped closer to this end, which next with narrow roof of tiles atop, twixt prisoning walls they pinch, and add thereto from the four winds four slanting window slits. In other words, get a very small little shed that's enclosable and, and can be sealed. Then seek from the herd a steer whose horns with two years' growth are curling, and stop fast, plunge madly as he may, the panting mouth and nostril, and do with blows to death, batter his flesh to the pulp, the hide yet whole, 
and shut the doors and, and leave him there to lie. So here's the regime. You take a bull, two-year-old bull, you stuff the nostrils in the mouth so that the bull suffocates, and you beat the body of the bull, but you do not break the skin. It's very important. You do not break the skin. You pulverize the carcass, and you seal it, and you leave it there. Then he says, Meanwhile, the juice within his softened bones heats and ferments, and things of wondrous birth, footless at first, anon with wings and feet, swarm there and buzz a marvel to behold. So, out of this sacrifice, out of this terrible corruption, comes honey. Remember, he's talking about cultural life. He's explicitly talking about cultural life. And then Virgil says, Say what was he, what God, that fashioned forth this art for us, O muses? How does it happen? Well, then he talks about Aristeus. And Aristeus is the famous beekeeper who appears in other classical references. Uh, but the story is that Aristeus suddenly, all his bees died. There was famine and pestilence and disease. And he cried out to his mother, who was a nymph, Serene. He said, come and help me. And Serene shows up. He says, how am I going to get more bees? And Serene says, well, there's only one person who knows. But the person is Proteus, the old sea god, you know, who wallows up onto the shore and goes asleep. And you have to sneak up on Proteus. He's a, like a big walrus or a seal. You sneak up on po Proteus, and, and she says, you grab him and bind him and don't let go because as soon as you grab him, he will start to go through all his changes. He's the great shapeshifter, you know. He goes through change after change after change. You grab him, he becomes a lion, a tiger, a, a river, a, a wind, a storm, a, anything. Just change after change after change. And she says, quote, For save by force, no advice will he vouchsafe, nor shall thou bend his soul by praying. You really have to just hold on while he's going through these changes. Uh, Aristeus is led to the grotto where Proteus is uh, napping, and he seizes him and he holds on. All these changes, very terrifying changes, but he holds on. And at the end, Proteus says, okay, what do you want? And he said, I have, I have an oracle to ask. And the question is, I lost all my bees. I don't know how to get the bees back. What has happened? And Proteus says, well, the problem, of course, is divine wrath. And in your case, it's Orpheus himself whose wrath has caused your catastrophe. Now you get, this is totally new. This is just Virgil. Without Virgil, Proteus would have said, well, look, go sacrifice and kill a bull and uh, have the bees come up out of the carcass and so on. But Virgil sets the story within the story, which is the story of Orpheus, because Orpheus is, say, a kind of archetypical poet. The way it fits is that Virgil has it be that it was Aristeus who was chasing Eurydice when she stepped on the snake and it bit her and she died and she went to the underworld. And Orpheus, who was a great musician, which is, a, let's just say, the bard, the poet, and he took his lyre to the underworld, charmed everybody in the underworld, and cut a deal. The deal was she can come back to you as long as you don't look back on your way out of the underworld. Why did Virgil inset the Orpheus story? Several commentators have noticed that the Orpheus story is filled with emotion, more so than the rest of the Georgic, as though it's really at the heart of it for Virgil. In the fourth eclogue, which is written earlier, Virgil had said he, what he wanted to do was to sing the song of the Redeemer figure, who was Octavian, who was going to be Caesar Augustus. He says, I want to sing that song, the destiny of Rome, and how this figure is going to play such a role. And he says there, Ah, might such length of days to me be given, and breath suffice me to rehearse thy deeds, nor Thracian Orpheus should outsing me then. In other words, he identifies his role with the role of Orpheus. So we should think now of this identification when we get to the Georgians, because he's talking about the paradigmatic Orpheus journey, which is into the underworld. The central image in the Aeneid is Aeneas' journey into the underworld. And 
coming back with the new knowledge that makes it possible for him to complete the, the journey and found a new civilization. Just to note that Virgil is interested in Orpheus because Orpheus represents what Virgil's going to do in the Aeneid. Orpheus goes into the underworld. He cuts a deal. Yes, you can rescue uh, your beloved one from the underworld if you don't look back. So that's the one condition. The benefits that the ancient system has to offer us have one requirement, and that is that you don't turn around and look back, really look back, because as soon as you do, it's lost. Just keep that image in mind. You see, That's the one requirement. Don't turn and look back. Virgil says, For at the very threshold of the day, heedless, alas, and vanquished of resolve, Orpheus stopped, turned, looked upon Eurydice, his own once more, but even with the look, poured out was all his labor. And L.P. Wilkinson, who's written an essay on this, says, quote, Everything is concentrated on the fatal moment when Orpheus looked back, and the word is respected, when Orpheus looked back and all was lost. Now, when the cock crows in the New Testament, Peter looks back. On the road to Damascus, Paul looks back. Uh, the conversion has to do with turning around to what the word means, you see, looking back, recognizing. But it's exactly the opposite in this dispensation. If you look back, you can be lost. So Aristeus has learned that he is the one who caused Eurydice to die. Therefore, Orpheus is angry with him. Therefore, he has to offer sacrifice to Orpheus. Orpheus has taken his bees away. He has to offer sacrifice to Orpheus. And here's how he does it. Four bulls, four cows, four altars, quote, and from their throats let gush the victim's blood. And then after that, uh, funeral dues to Orpheus, and then uh, an adoration to Eurydice, another sacrifice, th two more sacrifices, and so on. He sets up the altars, and he begins this very elaborate and, and uh, copious sacrificial uh, regime, which is going to last some time. And he comes back to the last sacrifice, and Virgil says, but sudden, strange to tell, a portent they espy through the oxen's flesh, waxed soft in dissolution. Hark, there hum bees from the belly. The rent ribs overboil. In endless clouds they spread them till at last on yon treetop together fused they cling. In other words, the birth of culture again, the birth of a bit new beehive from other sacrificial rituals. Has Virgil seen something here? He's talking to Messinus about culture. He's using a rural metaphor, but he's talking about culture. How does it come to be? What happens if you lose it? How do you get it again? In the first instance, it comes. You have a victim. You stuff the mouth of the victim and the, suffocate the victim, and you don't let any blood be seen. You pulverize, you, you kill the victim with blows, but you do not break the skin. And then, lo and behold, out of that comes cultural life, metaphor being the beehive. And if all of that is lost and you have to do it again, you need another sacrifice, a ritual form of the more highly structured and elaborate ritual form of, of the sacrifice. L.P. Wilkinson, who's written an essay on the Georgic, says, the conclusion of the Aristea story is so short as to be perfunctory. What echoes in the reader's mind is not Aristeus' joy at the replacement of his bees, but Orpheus's thrice-repeated cry of Eurydice, lamenting the death of Eurydice. It is his tragic disobedience and his inconsolable grief that Virgil throws in relief. Why? Wilkinson asks, why? And then he says, scholars are still discussing the question. What Virgil sees in all of this he tells the story, he makes it come out the way it's supposed to come out, but the moral and emotional power of the story is in the failure of Orpheus, not in the final rectification of everything, and finally Aristeus gets his bees back. And this is a, the Aeneid in miniature. 
you have a sacrifice at the end and you get the bees back and culture begins anew. Culture fell apart at Troy, sacking of Troy. Culture comes back together again. You have a sacrifice. Turnus dies. You have a new culture. That's very nice. But the, but the emotional power of the poem is concerned with something else, which is the failure of the poet. That is to say, Orpheus's failure to enter into that underworld and bring back something that will be of lasting value. You see what I mean? And this is what Virgil feels very powerfully in the Aeneid, and it's absolutely clear in the Aeneid. So what Wilkinson points out, and I'm so appreciative of him because, I mean, I'm not a scholar, you know, and I like to have scholars say these things. That's why I'd rather quote them. And, and he's a careful student of this, and he says, the real emotional emphasis is not on Aristeus's success, but on Orpheus's failure. He went into the underworld, he tried to bring the treasure out, and when he turned to look at it, it was lost. And then Wilkinson says, Virgil is here moving toward the Aeneid, a poem of loss, defeat, and pathos as much as it is of triumph and destiny. I would just conclude by making two points. Virgil, I think, has, is aware, even at the point of when he's doing the last of the Georgics, that there is an inherent failure in the muse-inspired poetry, that the price one has to pay is the price of not looking. And once you can no longer pay that price, once what, what it is you're not supposed to look at is already clear to you, then you're in a terrible double bond. And I think Virgil is precisely the poet who's in that double bond. And secondly, he's aware of the what the fourth Georgic shows, I think, in, in metaphor, that Virgil is aware of the sacrificial structure of things. More aware of it than it is healthy for an epic poet to be aware of. Virgil's epitaph is supposed to have been, and I don't have it here, but uh, I think of nature, of work, and of cultural life. It's not that. It's something much more interesting. But it's in Latin, and it's supposed to, and it refers to the eclogues and the Georgics and the Aeneid. But, it, but I would say if we had Virgil's tombstone to work with, we should put Wallace Stevens, these lines from Wallace Stevens on. It is not enough to cover the rock with leaves. Wallace Stevens, by the way, perfectly, as all poets are aware of the metaphorical significance of things. Leaves would have meant pages in a book the things he's writing on when he writes, writes this poem. It's not enough to cover the rock with leaves. We must be cured of it by a cure of the ground or a cure of ourselves that is equal to a cure of the ground, a cure beyond forgetfulness, end quote. And that's the cure that the muse-inspired poetry can never reach. And Virgil had nothing else. And so he does his best. He tries to tell the story in such a way that it will have mythic effects. 